You guys can turn back in your Bibles. First to Matthew chapter 2, we will be actually meditating out of Philippians chapter 2. I want to talk to you today a bit about um, another little person, and that would be Christ our Savior. The title of our message to meditate on today is Christ, the child servant. Christ, the child servant. And I want the thought to impress itself upon you, not in a hallmark card way or in the kind of missive, diminished view we might have of children, but rather I want you to think through the idea that to be the best servant you could be, you actually have to be like a child. To be the best servant you and I could ever be is to be like a child. And so in that sense, children have a remarkably, remarkably uh, strong advantage over us as adults because children have certain fundamental expectations about their dependence upon their upline, about the kind of profound relationship they have with their parents, singular or plural. And for them, it is not some kind of burden or some kind of drudgery. It's natural to the child to be supervised and governed and cared for and to interact with that parent. And the idea, therefore, of the child servant before us is what I want you to think about. Now, we have been fascinated for centuries around the profound efforts made by the Magi. That's the term in Matthew's chapter two, the Magi. It's a Greek term that meant that the men that came from the far east as far as Babylon, but probably Persia, because those were the two colonial powers that dominated Israel in Daniel's vision in chapter seven of the book of Daniel. And when God sent the Jews, the Hebrew people, into the diaspora to Babylon, Medo-Persia, and then ultimately the Grecians Hellenized everyone, and finally the Roman Empire, Babylon and Medo-Persia had the most auspicious relationship with the Jews. You guys know that. We know that Nebuchadnezzar and and his son, uh, Belteshazzar, actually knew some remarkable men in, in Babylon who were called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Daniel, Esher, uh, Ananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You guys know that. Profoundly important men representing the Hebrew people. Well, what does that mean? That means that all of the promises of God, which the Hebrew people believed in concerning Messiah, was given to the Babylonians. It was even much more so impressive around that truth for the Medo-Persians, because as you know in your Bible, that one Medo-Persian king who happened to have been Artaxerxes married a Jewish sister named who? Esther, which means that the Medo-Persians were profoundly impacted by Judaism And Judaism properly is really the message of Jesus the Christ, Yeshua Mashiach. You guys know that. And so by the time we get to the birth of Christ, where we are and we celebrate, you might as well know that there was such a permeation of biblical promises given to the Babylonians and the Medo-Persians. It does not surprise us that there were men who believed in Messiah 
800 miles away and were willing to travel that distance by camel to meet the Savior. Now, I've said it many times around this message. You won't find hardly or nary, this is the way we say it in the country, nary a Christian that would go eight miles, let alone 800 miles to meet the master. But what I want to impress you with in terms of that today is that these magi, would have, which, have, which would have been very prominent men, very knowledgeable men, very wealthy men, they would have been astronomers and astrologers and scientists and mathematicians. They would have been also wizards and, and if you will, those who engaged in pagan arts. That was all a conflation. But nevertheless, they would have been wise men. And somehow they were compelled to believe That God, the God of the heavens, had a son who would come into the world and be king of the Jews. Now, these are pretty smart men. And I want you to think this through with me. Would you have come to see the king of the Jews at two years old? Or would you have waited until he was 18 or 20 when maybe he was more mature and ready to engage you intellectually. And would you probably have been more intellectually or um, curious about who this king is in Israel as an adult versus a child? But our account tells us they went this far to see a child. If you listen to the language carefully in Matthew's Chapter 2, verse 12. Listen to the language again. This is going to be a a visual that we capture briefly here in Matthew's account of it. I want to lift it up and then we're going to Philippians because I want us to meditate on the significance of a child servant. The significance of a child servant. Listen to what it says in Matthew 2. Yeah, verse 10, Matthews 2, 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. Verse 11. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother. Snapshot, we get that, all the movies, right? We got all of these visuals. But what did they do? They fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures... They presented unto him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Stop. Think about this for a moment with me. How profoundly impactful was this on these men to set their eyes on a baby? They fell down to worship him as if he was a grown adult monarch ruling the world with power and dominion. They worshiped him in the greatest of sincerity. They're looking a child in the face and worshiping him as the king. Again, don't look at this as merely an an optic, a kind of profound visual. Think about how those men must have been thinking about what they set their eyes on. I assure you that their minds penetrated that little baby and understood what they were looking at. They were looking at the king of glory. They were beholding the king of glory. That is the mystery of the message of redemption for us, that God is the king of glory. 
and that these pagans, these Gentiles would behold him with that kind of clarity, that kind of reverence, that kind of respect. Child of God, you've been a Christian a hundred years. And do you and I really render that kind of homage to Christ? Do we contemplate him with the depths of these men? Do we yield the same kind of labor that they did to get there? And when their eyes set on the son of the living God, they prostrated, fell before him and rendered absolute sincere worship. I say to you, it's because they actually believe the message. They didn't wait until he was an adult. When they saw him, not in a cradle, he's about two years old, they said, this is the king of glory and rendered unto him honor. What is the point that I want you to take from that? I want you to recognize that they didn't say he's just a child. He's a little bitty baby. He doesn't matter right now. Maybe when he gets older, he'll matter. No, he mattered the moment he entered into the womb of his mother, Mary. He mattered the moment that she brought him forth. He mattered the moment they set their eyes on him. And my point to you as we begin to work through the idea of Christ, the child servant, is that what Paul has said in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Philippians 2, 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Pastor, what was that mind? It was the mind to say yes to God. That's the first mind. It's the mind that says whatever God wants, I want to do it. It's the mind that says yes to the Father's will of leaving eternity and coming into time. That's a profound event for the son of the living God. It's a mind that says, yes, I'll take on a human nature. It's a mind that says, yes, I will become the essence of humanity, not for a time, but for eternity. It's the mindset of obedience to the will of God to which you and I as believers are also called. It is a profound sense of condensation, condescension that the Lord Jesus Christ engaged in. Point number one in our outline, the condescension of the son of the living God, the condescension of the son of the living God. Our meditation is on the child servant. These are two words that are interchangeable. I'm going to prove that to you. The role of Messiah is expressed by the apostle Paul in Philippians chapter two, verses five and following. We call this the Carmen Christi. It is a a hymn that the saints sang in praise to God when they remember that Jesus was from eternity. He did not have a beginning. He was from everlasting to everlasting. And from eternity, he entered into time. This is what we call the doctrine of the incarnation. That is, God assumed a human nature. See, a lot of people today really struggle with that. But do you know your Bible is explicitly clear that what those men saw was God? Your Bible's clear on that. Matthew 1, 23 says, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Explicit. People argue all they want to around that. But Emmanuel means God is with us. 
in that same text, it says, you shall also call his name Jesus, Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And this was predicated on Isaiah chapter nine. We heard it last week unto us. A child is born unto us. A son is given. And among all of the titles, he is called the everlasting father, the mighty God, the prince of peace, the wonderful, the counselor. And upon his shoulders shall be the government and his peace shall exist for all eternity. This is the God that assumed our nature. We're told this in 1 Timothy 3.16. If she can keep up with me, great is the mystery of what? Y'all don't know y'all Bible. Great is the mystery of godliness. This is what the text says. Listen to it without controversy. God was manifested where? In the flesh. That clause right there is the essence of the gospel. The essence of the gospel is that God was manifest in the flesh. This is the propositional truth claim that inherently holds all of our redemptive possibilities and hopes. You let that go, you lose the hope of glory. You let go of the notion that God was manifest in the flesh. Then those magi, how many were there? I heard you know, you don't know if there was three. It was just three sets of gifts. It could have been 53. As far as you know, you're still going to get some Bible study. I know this is Christmas time, but you're getting Bible study here. Don't ever tell anybody it was three because there was no number there. So what we want to be is is theologically sound. What that means is you observe the text for what it says, not what you think it says. Okay, it could have been it could have been a legion of them, but there were three characteristics of gifts that were given, which were often given to me to kings and rulers and magistrates. But here our text says without controversy, great is the what of godliness. We admit that it's a mystery, don't you? You can never explain the incarnation. You can simply declare it. You can't make people believe something that fundamentally on a logical level is irrational. But the Bible is clear to us that Jesus Christ was the son of the living God, which made him very God of very God. Now, if this is true, you know what Isaiah tells us also in Isaiah 57, 15, Isaiah 57, 15 describes this compassionate collaboration between this infinite God and finite human beings like you and I. Listen to the promise and let's see if we can make an attachment to Jesus. For thus saith the high and the lofty one. Is that a legitimate attribution of God? The high and the lofty one. Uh, Another phraseology for this in, in the book of Genesis is he is the most high God. That means there is no God above him. He is El Elyon, the one true and living God. And besides him, there is no other God. And in fact, the way we know him in the joy of our salvation, he's lofty to us. Is he lofty to you? Is he gloriously lofty? We need a lofty God today. Don't you know that? You need a lofty God. You don't need a weak peon God. You don't need a fickle God. You don't need a God coming and going. You need a God who sits on his throne and controls every affair of this universe. You need a God who is not moved by the cares of men and the chaos of governments and the atrocities that humans engage in. You need a high and lofty God. 
He sits, he rules, he governs, and he tells you it's going to be all right in the end. Don't you need that kind of God when you're in trouble? Of course you do. So those magi saw the king of glory and worshiped him as we ought to. Now, notice what he says. He says he inhabits eternity. What does that mean? It means he's bigger than eternity. He feels it, inhabits it. He's bigger than that. That's a massive concept. If eternity is a created thing and we could argue that with Einstein, then God made it. And if God made eternity, God has to be bigger than eternity. Would you agree with that? See, this is why the Bible really jacks people up, because it says things that violate all kinds of parameters in your mind. I happen to believe it. Do you? So here's what it says. He is the God that inhabits eternity, whose name is what? Whose name is what? And every time the demons showed up in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they called him the Holy One of God. They knew he was God. How come you don't? If demons know he's God, why don't sinners know? It's extremely important that we recognize that, you know, we're in a mess in our world today. The one thing we can be sure of is that all humanity is a bunch of sinners. We know that. Right. Because almost every other creature can recognize the consistency, coherence and clarity of biblical proposition around God because he's proving himself to be God all the time. And we keep saying there is no God. There is no God. There is no God. When everything is crying out, there must be a God, because if there isn't, we're already in hell. Whose name is holy. Now, notice what he says of himself. This is self-indexing. This is what God is saying. I dwell in the high and the holy place. Here's another word for it. If you can't find the reference, it's called heaven. He's called the God of heaven. If you can't find a reference for it, just hold on to heaven. I dwell in the high and holy place. That's heaven, right? Aren't the two, two dimensions, heaven and hell, earth and heaven? God sits in the heavens and does whatever he wants to. I dwell in the high and holy place. Now mark this. This is a beautiful concept. With him also... That is of a contrite and humble spirit. You want to hang out with the high and lofty God? You got to be humble. You got to be contrite. You got that? See what's going on here? Now you see what Isaiah is doing. Isaiah is actually building a a composite for us of what constitutes a relationship with this glorious high being. On our part, it requires humility. This is where we're going with the issue of the child. Except you become like a little child. You and I cannot hang out with the king of glory. And if you want to, if all you can handle is a few minutes of this message, this text is speaking to Jesus. The Bible's clear that Jesus is the humble one, is he not? He's the meek and lowly one. And God the Father dwells with him in the beauty of the purpose of redemption. Now, if you and I have come to that place of humility and here a humble spirit actually speaks to being broken, uh, struggling, going through difficulties, the cares of life pressing you down. It's not like a kind of religious disposition of being humble, like a whole bunch of fake religious folk do. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? They act like their feet don't touch the ground, right? That's a false humility. Humble simply means you're recognizing your limitations. You're recognizing your boundaries. You're recognizing your inability. That's all humility is. Humility gives you the opportunity to tell the truth. 
Right. You meet a brother or sister that's walking humbly. They're not telling you they're perfect. They're certainly not telling you they are better than anyone else. A humble brother or sister just saying, I'm broken. I need God. I'm weak. I'm feeble. My, tr- my trials have proved to me that I'm not God. That's a humble person. OK, that's a humble person. Now, God dwells with the humble spirit with this purpose. This here in the, in the Greek language would be a purpose, purpose clause in order to revive the spirit of the humble. Don't we sometimes need reviving and to revive the heart of the contract ones? This is the beauty of humility as it's represented in Jesus. And this is what Paul wants us to consider in Philippians 2. I want to walk you through this briefly before I release you. Look with me over in verse 5 and we'll work our way through verses 6 through 10 minimally. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Let this mind be in you that was in him. The thing that you and I learn about Christ is that he had every right and every, every prerogative to be self-adulating and, and call for glory to himself. But the son of the living God never did that. And this is what Paul wants us to get. Look at verse six, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now, this is what he's doing. He's giving us an imperative. The imperative is have the same mind that Jesus had. Now he's going to do an explication of the imperative. This is what that means. It means that Jesus knew that he bore equality with his father at the nature of his deity. He knew he was God. He knew he was God. Now, when you know you something, Boy, you, you know, you can you can get pretty bold about it. Jesus knew that he was God. He knew that he was from everlasting to everlasting. He knew he bore equality with the father. This is what Paul is saying. And he's saying being in the form of God, that little construction there simply means all of the divine qualities that you and I attribute to God. Jesus possessed. If you and I say that God is from everlasting to everlasting, the Bible's clear. So it was with Christ. If you say that God is almighty, the Bible is clear. Jesus has all power. If you say that God is the all wise God, the Bible is clear. Jesus is the wisdom of God. He's the wisdom. He's the power. He's the eternality of God. If you say that that God is infinite and immutable and unchangeable. It's true of Jesus as well. The Bible lays that out. But these are what we call um, non-shared attributes that makes God distinct from you and me. What makes you and I not God is that you and I are not all powerful. We're not all knowing. We're not everywhere present. We don't have all wisdom. We are not immutable. You know what that means? Every second of the day you're changing. Like from the time we watched those kids to them sitting down, you got older. That, that's going to set in in a minute. That's, that's, called, that's called mutation. You and, I, you and I are mutating as I speak. Hang out long enough with me and I, you can just do my funeral. Because we are mutating. The true and the living God does not change. And this is true of Jesus as well. So what I'm getting at is think about the kind of mindset Christ had. He had the mindset of knowing that he and the father and the Holy Ghost created the universe. And yet he is now in this universe in a human body. 
And let's enjoy the assumption that by the time he became a carpenter and began his ministry somewhere around 30, uh, 34 years old, he had the prerogative if he wanted to, to show off that he was God, but he didn't. And here's how you can know that he didn't show off that he was God, because today most people don't believe that he was. He did a great job, didn't he? See, because he did not come to show off that he was God, he came to show off God that he came from. He came to show off his father's glory. And in order for you and I to understand our relationship with the high and lofty God, we got to be humble enough, humble enough to know it's not about us either. Jesus came to teach us it wasn't about him. It was about his father. So under the first point, look at it. The condescension of the son of God. He is equal in essence, equal in nature, equal in substance. We clearly affirm the Bible's explication that he is attributed with being God. Hebrews chapter one, verse eight, the Hebrew writer tells us that this is what the father said of the son. Just to give you Bible verses, if you know your Bible is the grounds upon which you make your claim. But unto the son, this is Jesus. He said, this is the father speaking your throne. Oh, God. It's forever and ever. What does that mean? The father gave the son a throne. Pastor, what do you mean? What do you think those magi were doing when they worshiped the king? They worshiped the king because he knew they knew he had a throne. He was the king of glory. Did y'all get that? He had a throne. Now, those of us who know our Bible, we know that the father spoke to the son in Psalm 110 around verse four. And the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. This is the Melchizedekian rule of the son of the living God. I'm sharing with you that Jesus had every right to boast in his deity, but he never did. Now, wasn't that he didn't manifest his deity? He did but he didn't glory in it. Notice what the language says. Notice, going back to our text, notice what it says in Philippians chapter two, verse six. Notice what it says. I want you to walk with me with this. Remember, our concept is a child servant. What it means to be a servant of the Lord with the humble mindset of a child. That's why we celebrate his birth. And again, for those of you who are visiting, Jesus was not born on December 25th. So you can argue with ignorant Christians around that all you want to. You won't get that here. OK, we have some biblical, some historical, astrological uh, calendar evidences around what probably was the time of his birth. But it certainly wasn't December 25th. Y'all got that? And and and. uh Thankfully, many Christian communities around the world do not worship the birth of Christ or are celebrated on the same day. And that's important for you to know as well. There's a lot of times us American Christians are in a box of Western mindset around the Messiah when the Western mindset is the last mindset that got a grip on the gospel. It was the Middle East that had the gospel first, then Africa, okay? 
And then the regions of Europe making its way up to Britain. I'm just simply saying to you, there are a lot of different views of the origins of our master. And you want to be careful that you don't get locked into your Western view. Being in the form of God, he thought it not robbery. See that phrase, thought it not robbery? So that's an important concept because what it says was Jesus didn't have a covetous impulse in his nature to be jealous for people knowing that he was God. We talked about this last week, didn't we? We talked about covetousness is the absence of fullness. Didn't I share that with you? So like you and I may struggle with needs and struggle with wants and struggle with desires. And we do, don't we? And that's okay so long as you don't let those desires and needs turn into idols. Where now you want to hurt people in order for you to achieve. Did that make some sense? So you never saw Jesus begging. You never saw him exercising the prerogative of his deity in a way to show off for himself. Why? Because he walked in a fullness that was rooted in his relationship with his father. Now, this is important for you to know, because if you're a servant, I am imploring you for the year 2024 to be a child servant. To walk humbly with the Lord your God so that he can bless you as a servant in a way in which he meets your needs so that you don't steal his glory. Am I making some sense? It's extremely important then to see Jesus as the model of that. He never thought it robbery. The construction there could be better translated. He didn't try to take the reputation of being God. He didn't try to take it. That's all human beings without God do on this earth. Take stuff. It's what we're looking at in the Middle East right now. Taking stuff. Taking stuff. When you're a child of God, you don't have to take anything from anyone. God has given you every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If you get smart enough to ask God, he will give it to you. Without upbraiding quickly when you submit to his will. Am I making some sense? Right. So you have not because what? All right. So as a child of the living God, we have been promised all kinds of blessings. And God simply tells you and I to make sure that when we ask, we're not asking to consume it on our lust. When you and I ask God to give us something, it's in order for God to be glorified through us by the efficiency of the things we are asking for. So Jesus did not think it robbery to be equal with God. Now notice the next verse, verse number seven, as we walk through. But he made himself of what? Now again, let's walk through this just a tad. Jesus is one of the most well-known persons on the planet. So we gotta, we gotta understand this, don't we? Because I mean, like he has a reputation. What does that mean? He made himself of no reputation in terms of who he was in his divine nature. When he came, he came not to do his own will, but the will of him that sent him. Does that make sense? So now when you're a servant that presupposes you have a what? A master. I know you, you, all y'all are kings and queens in America, so y'all don't get it. When you're a servant or a slave, it means you have a master. 
And what that means is you operate in total subordination to your master. What that means in terms of your conception and your your intentions and your impulses, everything you want to do is subordinated to everything that he or they want you to do. That means you are always checking with your master as to whether or not what you want comports and lines up with what he wants. Am I making sense? All right. And, and if that be the case, wouldn't it be advantageous to you and me to have a childlike mindset? Because, you know, I mean, our children are cantankerous. There is no doubt about that. They are volitional creatures and they do early on quickly express their own opinions and views and they do have their 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 bits. They really do. But if we have a healthy relationship with our children, what they become aware of is that their will largely for a long period of time has to come into subordination to our will because the parents are there to protect them. Does that make some sense? And this should be the case with the people of God as well. This is what I'm trying to drive home. I'll say this one more caveat and and move on with, with this expression of the child servant. I have discovered... And I'll take a hearty amen if it's true, or I'll take one of these British silences if it's not. Have you ever heard British silence? It's so silent that you think you're under a prison sentence. Most of our troubles really only start when we start calling ourselves adults. Can I get a hearty amen? See what I'm getting at? Do you see what I'm getting at? Now, take the word adult and put it in front of anything you can imagine. And now it's all bad, isn't it? That'll come home in a second too. It's much better to be a child. But it requires humility. And joyful dependence upon the person that's watching over you. And this is what... Uh, Paul is making of Jesus. He made himself of no reputation. He took upon him the form of a what? The form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. He made himself of no reputation. That phrase or construction is what we call in the in the Greek language, the kenosis doctrine. He emptied himself. He literally emptied himself. I got to help you with that because I just told you that Jesus is immutable. He doesn't change. So emptying out has to mean something that does not refer to his divine essence. It has to refer to his calling and role. And what that means is when he made himself of no reputation, he had to find another way to exist among you and me without his glory telling on him. I'm going to leave that with you for a second. So just imagine, you know, you the top dog and you got skill sets up the yang yang. The young people will know what that means. And, 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 and everything you do is exceptional. And everybody else is marginal, if not, you know, subpar. And if you want to be like them, You know what you have to do? You have to cover your glory. Did that come home? If you are exceptional, if your qualities and skill sets are such that they can be seen a mile away and you are significantly better than your peers, if you want to be able to hang out with your peers, you got to cover your glory. 
covering his glory required him to take on humanity and then humanity in the form of a slave. Did that come home? So even though he's God by nature, even though he fills heaven and earth, even though he is perfect, even though the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 1 1 verse 2 that he is the express brightness of God's glory. That's a brightness that you and I can't even begin to contemplate nor draw unto. He is a being of perfect, infinite light. And yet he veiled that light, veiled that glory in a human nature, but not only in a human nature, but as a what? Slave. The word servant means slave. He took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. He said, now that I am going to become a human being, that's a real step down from being God, isn't it? That's a real step down, right? Because like we not, we're not making God look good these days, are we? Now just tell the truth. You're going to be saved if you tell the truth. We're not making God look good today. And yet Jesus decided to become like us. He veiled his glory. He veiled it long ago. I used the metaphor because I, I enjoy automobiles. And, you know, you may have your own Piccadillo about that. But let's say a Ferrari. Let's say a, a Testarossa. Let's say a Lamborghini and, and whatever beautiful color that you can imagine. On y'all, Can y'all see that? And let's see that thing is just sparkling and it's sitting out on the lot. And when you go in there, the first thing you see is that Lamborghini. And, you know, your mind is just going off all kind of places, is it not? The Lamborghini is drawing you. It's calling you. And a Lamborghini is not a Volkswagen. It's not a Fiat. Okay, so so we dream about a Lamborghini. Stay with me. And then four or five brothers come in with big old buckets a mud and take the mud and throw it all over the Lamborghini, all over the Lamborghini. You begin to have a fit inside yourself, don't you? You go, oh, my goodness. That's what Jesus did when he assumed our nature. He put on mud to cover his glory. He put on mud. Pastor, that's gross. You and I are a bunch of dirt bags. That's what we are. The Bible says God created us out of the dust of the ground, put a little water on us and we're a bunch of mud. And yet Jesus assumed the dirt bag status of human beings to lift us up out of our sinful condition and make us to be partakers of the divine nature. Am I making some sense? Right. Don't get mad at me because I called you a dirt bag. It's true. It's true. From dust you came to dust you're returning. I buried a lot of people. And I know one day I'm hitting the dirt. And all of us are going to turn back to the dust from whence we came. But the gospel tells us that dirt, your dirt, can be redeemed so that on the last day it can be glorified together with the son of the living God when he comes. God loved you enough to purchase your dirt. But when he assumed our nature, he covered his glory. And then he did an additional covering of it when he became what is called a slave. This is the slave of God. He is the Abed Malak. He is the slave of Yahweh, the slave of Jehovah. This is the way the Old Testament puts it all the time. Behold my servant. 
in whom I am what? Well pleased. This is the relationship between the, the king and his slave, between the father and his son. Y'all getting an analogy? It is a profound relationship that if you miss it, you don't understand why Jesus didn't do all that he could have done because he was under obligation not to. He was under obligation to live like you and I and live in this world under the conditions that would represent for you and me someone that is capable of taking our place. So under point number one, he's equal in essence and nature and substance. But sub point B, he was never anxious about it. He is never anxious about being God. Here's how he puts it in John 5, 19 and 20. I want you to capture this thought. Because if you really have never, ever paid attention to what Jesus said, he was always deferring to his father all the time. Listen to the language. This is John 5, 19. Notice what he said. Then answer Jesus unto them. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the son can do nothing of himself. Did y'all get that? That's slave language. That's the language of a slave. A slave doesn't get to do whatever. A slave will shorten his life radically if he just wakes up one day and says, you know what? I'm going to do whatever I want to do, disregarding my master. But you notice what it says? He says the son can do nothing of himself. See, for you and I, this is either alien or uncomfortable because you and I are so used to exercising our autonomy. We're so used to waking up in the morning, not even thanking God for the breath that we have. We're so used to waking up, setting our own plans, our own goals, laying them out and then endeavoring to do them without going whatever the Lord's will is. That's what's most important. Am I making some sense? And we're looking at a man who took on our nature and he was willing to be the kind of servant and he would express it. This, too, is covering his glory, is it not? The son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the father do for whatsoever things he uh, for whatsoever things he doeth, that is the father. These also do the son likewise. What a humble attitude. If you see me doing something, it's only because my father did it. And if I'm doing it, it's because my father is working in me to do it. This is what I mean by the idea of Jesus covering his glory, him uh, veiling his, his prerogative to be God. It is a beautiful concept, and we are making our way now to the idea of the servant child really being a concept that you can't separate. So we are now at point number two, his commitment to humility. Look again at Philippians 2, verse 7. Philippians 2, 7, the Apostle Paul, under this beautiful treatise, as well as I stated the psalm, he says he made himself of no reputation. That is, he emptied himself, took on the form of a slave and was made in the likeness of men. Verse eight, verse eight. He goes on to say, and being found in fashion as a what? Being found in fashion as a man. Just for those of you who just kind of really need to know what that means. It means there was no time in his human life where he did not bear the attributes and characteristics of a real human being. When he was born, he was completely dependent upon his mother's breast. As he was growing up, he was totally dependent upon his parents' care. Even as he did ministry, he was totally dependent both upon his heavenly father, but he had a human nature. Jesus was hungry too, wasn't he? 
He was weary too, wasn't he? There were times when Jesus in the, in the mystery of his humanity and divine nature would, uh, would query and raise questions. Did he not? Did he not say in the garden of Gethsemane, father, if it's possible, those are human characteristics. So we can track with Jesus and we don't have to assume that we're creating a construct out of him that doesn't comport with you or not. Which one of you, when you're in trouble, don't question whether or not God is in it? Which one of you, when you're struggling, don't say, Lord, can I get out of this? See, all of these are qualities of his human nature that should appeal to you and me. We don't want a savior who is so above our weaknesses and temptations that we can't identify with him. But if you track with Jesus, and particularly if you read the Old Testament with all of the prophetic uh, impulses of his expression, he was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with griefs. He was thoroughly acquainted with trouble. Sound like us. Doesn't it sound like us? And we come to church and we put on a front like we're good. You're not good. You're not well. I'm looking at a bunch of beautiful people. Y'all got cologne and perfume on, perhaps. Don't put too much on. But I'm looking at you and I know you're not well. Because none of us are well. We got skeletons in our closet. Some of them are alive still trying to kick the door open. And we scared to death they're going to come out and tell on us. We got psychological issues. We got emotional issues. We got relational issues. We got domestic issues. We got all kinds of troubles. Y'all bearing record with me? Right. Man is full of trouble as the sparks fly upward. That's what Job said. And I agree with him, don't you? I've said it for many years. I'm so used to trouble that when I have long periods of cessation, I say, where my enemy at? Did he go on vacation? Where, where, Where did he go? And I'm not real used to not having somebody trying to get at me. How about you? I'm talking about my inner man. I'm talking about my carnal man trying to twist my head and send me down the wrong direction. And that's because you and I are vulnerable to the fallacy of being human beings. See what I'm getting at? And Jesus lived an authentic, real life. Bearing all of these kind of weaknesses and characteristics short of sin. He never sinned, but he bore the temptations of our sin. And he did it under the slavery, the willing, voluntary slavery of his father. This is the idea of it. And so sub point A under point number two, his commitment to humility. I love him for it. He always deferred to his own father's greatness. My father is greater than I. That's what he says in John's gospel, chapter 14, 28. And again, he says it later on down the line in chapter 10, 29. We believe that about him. And then again, he says in John 4, 34, my meat, my satisfaction is to do the will of him that sent me. This is a child's mindset. I'm just I'm just sharing this with you. Remember again, as we go on to our final point, remember again, most of us can agree That as we get older and take on our, again, our own sovereign destinies, (laughs) we get into more trouble. We find ourselves in more struggles. We find ourselves making mistakes that cost more. Would you agree? Right. And, you know, you may or may not have had a decent childhood. 
But if you did, you are extremely fortunate. And a lot of us, as we get older, I'm headed to my last point. A lot of us, as we get older, even though we grew up in a precarious home with some difficulty, we often can still look back and say, you know what? It wasn't as bad as it could have been. Can I get a witness? Right. Now, again, that impulse comes from the naivete and character and nature of a child, because that's the way children think. Children will naturally always think better of their parents than their parents really are. That's a grace. Like my kids, my daughters especially, they thought I was just the greatest thing since sliced bread until they were about 12 years old. Then it all changed. Uh, you know, and you, you, really, you really love their naivete, but that's because they want you to be a sufficient provider. They want you to be the kind of person that they can look up to. They want you to be the kind of person that when they hit their limit, when they come short of the glory, they can defer to you to help them. And that's our role. And in that sense, guess what? Go to Galatians chapter four one for me. In that sense... Every one of us are slaves too. Listen to the language. I'm speaking to believers. This is the tension you and I are in. The moment that you and I were born again, we were redeemed sons and daughters of God. Do you agree with that? But we are in a state right now between grace and glory. A lot of y'all knew and don't know this. If you meet a real Christian, the one thing you must know is that a real Christian is in between. That's what you must know. You must know that a real Christian has not yet arrived. And if he told you that he has or she told you that she has, they're a liar and the truth is not in them. They got insecurity issues at best because they don't want you to see them for what they are in between. And you know what in between means? I'm not there yet. I'm not what I used to be, but I'm not what I'm going to be. I'm in between. That means I'm a work in progress. Y'all keeping up with me? All right. So I want to tie the analogy of in between to children. Because children go from being newborn babes into Christ, desiring the sincere milk of the word, and they grow. They grow. Do they not? And many of us are spiritual fathers and mothers. I've been that way for a long time. And some of y'all take a long time to grow up. I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> David laughing. Some of y'all take a long time to grow up and we have to say they're, they're, they're in transition. They're developing, they're maturing. Am I making some sense? You know, our kids will be 12, 13, 14 years old and we see little potentials in them, don't we? We say, Lord, I see the potential. I see the potential. Then they do something stupid and we go, oh, we back to square one all over again. Back to square one all over again. That's how you are as a Christian. So you are. You're, you're just like that. You're just like that, child of God. Don't fool yourself. You and I are no different than our children. We only, the, the only difference is that we have a perfect heavenly father and our kids have an imperfect father and an imperfect mother. But other than that, you and I are vacillating all the time. We are regressing, sometimes progressing, and we can't tell which one it is. Based upon, you know, our foolishness, based upon our foolishness. But listen to what the Hebrew writers, what, what Paul says. Now, I say that an heir, are we heirs of God? Are we joint heirs with Christ Jesus? Well, how come most of us are broke? 
I know that's another message, but it still works. Doesn't it still work? See, this is what I meant between grace and glory. You will hear Christians talking like they're on top of the world in debt by 40, 50, 60, 70 thousand dollars. They're lying. They're lying. They're lying. They're still in transition. They haven't figured out how to do earth well. Y'all keeping up with me? And yet your Bible tells you all things are yours. And yet you don't know how to walk in those things because you're still immature. Do you know what happens when our kids reach a certain age? We get scared to let them go. You know, do you give them a car? You know they're going to tie that car up. You know they're going to tie that car up. They're going to be looking somewhere, head, head twisted off, and tie that car up. You know that, don't you? Right. There's a liability and vulnerability growing up, isn't it? Right. And, and, and so it is with us in the faith. I'm so glad for the forgiveness of sins. I'm so glad that God has granted mercy and forgiveness of sins. I got one thing to say on that because of the foolishness that's going on in our world right now. I heard a very prominent pastor just unadvisedly talking about nations don't have the call of God to forgive. These are warmongering prophets, warmongering preachers. Y'all got them in America. They're big. They sit in the White House. They help navigate wars and they create teams, the good guys and the bad guys, the black hats and the white, the Christian. Can y'all imagine that? Can, can you imagine? Can you imagine Jesus sitting up with Pontius Pilate and Herod sitting up with the rulers of the secular system trying to figure out how to destroy their foes? You can if you know the gospel well. But religion does it all the time. And here, here, here's what I'm getting at with that. Here's what I want you to get. This, the essence of the utility of the gospel is that forgiveness is available to mitigate all forms of evil and crime that mankind engages in. Please listen to me. When you're done exercising your wisdom, when you're done exercising your wisdom, the only thing that can fix this world is the forgiveness of sins. When you're done exercising your wisdom, please hear me. When you're done exercising and you babies listen to PJ well, we can talk, we can discuss, we can debate, we can deconstruct, we can have counsels, we can have advice. But when two people are at odds with each other, are you hearing me? If forgiveness isn't the mechanism, they're going to kill each other. And this is how we know mankind is depraved as can be. He will operate at an escalation of anger and hostility until he loses his mind. And now he's ready to go to war. But no such thing constitutes what it means to be a child. When I was a child, I was fighting all the time. How about y'all? You'd fight with your partner. Remember that you fight with your partner. Five minutes later, you're playing again. There's a difference between children and adults. Am I making some sense? And see, we, we make it a big business going around the world, killing people, blowing up stuff. And that pastor was saying, it's not the job of the nation to forgive. If that was the case, Rwanda wouldn't exist today. Did you hear what I just stated? It wouldn't exist if the Hutus and the Tutsis didn't sit down and say, let's forgive each other. Let's put it behind us. 
Let's apply to the blood of Christ and redemption that's in him and overcome our transgressions. The Hatfields and the McCoys continue because people are too proud to sit down and say, we made a mistake. We did something wrong. And this is why the Bible is clear. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. But thank God we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is able to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this is what Jesus meant. Hear me now. This is what Jesus meant when he said to you and I, except you become like a little child, you'll never enjoy the kingdom. You'll never enjoy the kingdom. Your life going to be miserable for here on out. And you're going to want to blame everybody else for your problems. We hear that crap in government all the time. It's never our fault. Have you ever heard your president say, I'm absolutely guilty of everything the media is saying I'm guilty of? Have you ever heard that? No, you haven't. No, you haven't. Because they have a policy of never admitting guilt. See, when you, when you choose power over peace, then all you can do is continue to apply power. This is what I love about Christ. He came as a child. He did not exercise the prerogative of power. He came to be a peacemaker. Am I making sense, children of the living God? It's extremely important for you to know that. And this world will continue blowing itself up and destroying itself so long as Jesus Christ is not on the throne of the hearts of men and women. You want to know why wars take place? Read James. From whence come wars among you? Do they not come from the lust that's in your soul to exercise power and dominion over somebody else because you want to have some kind of control? Yes, it's so true. It's so true. What you're looking at in this child that we're celebrating is he didn't come here to control. He came here to save. He came to set free. He came to release men and women. Now, my final point so we can move on. Under point number three, his commitment to divine, to divine slavery is explicitly laid out in Luke 2, 46 through 49, where the first time you meet Jesus after um, his, his birth and his, his, his small period of life with mom and dad is there in the temple. You guys know that. And, and notice what it says here. And it came to pass that after three days, they found him in the temple sitting in the midst of the doctors. He would have been about 12 or 13 years old, particularly if he had his bar mitzvah, right? What is he doing? He's in the midst of the doctors, both doing what? Both doing what? Right. So here's what Christians know who are want to be wise. The first thing you do is learn how to what? Right. Because in America, we like to talk first. Why don't you hear first? See, faith comes by what? Right. And it is it is much better to be in hearing mode than speaking mode when you don't know what you're talking about. Have you ever met people that just love to talk and then you go, they don't know what they're talking about. That's because they haven't learned the humility of listening. Like right now, you guys are in what we would call the. Uh, the optic and mode of discipleship. Right now you're sitting and being taught. That's a humble disposition. You don't have to listen to me. You could get up and leave. You could say, I don't never have to hear the Bible ever again. I know enough to be the one doing the teaching. That's what you can say. But the reality is we all need to be taught of God. We all need to sit in the pew and hear the word of God expounded and explained. 
every one of us. I don't care what position you are in, what skill set you have or how old you are. You are still in need of learning. We all are in need of learning. The best teachers are teachers who are learning all the time. And so the text tells us he was sitting both hearing them. There is his humanity. There is him veiling his glory. You don't think Jesus knew everything they were talking about in his divine nature. Here he is hearing them and then doing what? Asking them questions. Ah, that's another sign of humility. There is no dumb question to the man or the woman that's seeking wisdom. It's only arrogance and pride that will keep you from asking questions when deep down inside, you know, you really don't know. Now, here's how you really know that you don't know, but are too proud to say it. You don't even want somebody to ask you the question. Because if they ask you the question, you're not going to have the answer. So in your mind, you're going, don't ask me, don't ask me, don't ask me. But that's pride. That's nothing but pride. Did y'all hear what I just stated? A wise man will hear and increase in learning. This is what our world needs. It needs to be like Jesus. Do you see him? What is he doing? He's hearing. What is he doing? Asking questions. Guess what he's not doing? He's not arguing with the theologians. He's not debating with the elders. He's not trying to disrupt the the disciple-student-master relationship. Y'all got that? He knew how to sit and listen. You don't have to agree with what the master says, but you really do need to hear him out. And this is what made Jesus the most appealing man on the planet. Notice what he says in verse 7. Notice what he says. I need to get you guys out of here. Notice what he says in 247. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and his answers. He engaged them as a young man around theological issues, scholarly issues, social issues, world issues. And they were remarkably impressed by his humility, by his his cordiality but by his acumen as well, by his ability to engage them. This is the way we want our kids to be, don't we? We want our kids to be able to have an intelligent conversation that is broad, that is discerning, that is critical, but is also humble. This is how you learn. This, by the way, young people, this will get you a job every time. This will get you a job every time. Don't go in there acting like you know everything because you don't. All they want, all an adult wants to let you actually get on the platform for success is to be able to recognize whether or not you can hear. And if you don't have the answer, answer, excuse me, ma'am, excuse me, sir. I'm really struggling with this. This will get you a long way. It's called humility. It's called humility. Verse 49. Here comes the crux and we'll be able to wrap it up. And when they saw him, they were amazed. His mother said unto him, son. Why have you thus dealt with us? You see, she had a little narcissism going on right there. Y'all know that, right? Parents, most of y'all don't have that problem. See, it was all about Mary at this point, right? Struggling, Jesus, where you Jesus, where you at? Jesus, where you now? You know, just when they're not in your presence, you just, you know, mothers have really difficult times when the kids aren't in their presence, right? Uh, we can have a long conversation about that. The kids can be in the house with you and still be getting in trouble. You could be in the kitchen, mama, and they could be in the living room and be in catastrophic trouble. You think they all right. They in the living room tearing it up. 
and you're going, as long as they're in the house, we good. All right, let me keep going. So why, why have you dealt thus with us? Behold, your father and I have sought you sorrowing. Now, all I'm going to do is just say what Jesus is. I'm not going to unpack it. And he said unto them, how is it that you sought me? Okay, see, that, that's something for you to work with, okay? Just, if your kids ever ask you that, just tell them, stop, you not Jesus, okay? Just, just hurry up and you can, you can exercise prerogative. Uh, you can pull rank on them. He said, do you not know, do you not know that I must be about my father's business? That's that child servant. See, that's that child servant. He had his priorities clear, didn't he? He didn't mean to offend his, his, his mom and stepdad, but they were occupying a position where they forgot that God was in control. Mama forgot that she was a special object of a divine intervention in the conception of that child and that that child was on loan from God. And often parents forget that with their children. All the fruit of the womb is the Lord's. These are not your kids. I, I, I learned this early on with Jacob. These are the children whom the Lord hath given me. They are his kids. That relieved a lot of burden on me when I realized that I was just a hired servant for the Lord to feed these kids until they grew up and got out the house. I was so happy when their plane was taken off. I was like, Lord, them your kids, them your kids, them your kids. Help that plane to stay in the air. Right? Yeah, y'all get what I'm saying? And so Jesus said, hey, mom, I, dad, I'm, thir- I'm, I'm 13. It's, it's, it's adult time now. So I'm pressing into my real father's business. And again, saints, this is humility. He's saying his father's will be done. But this came up one more time at the end of his ministry, too. It's hard to, to grasp it, but it's true. Matthew 26, 42, you heard it. When was the last time that Jesus says, thy will be done? When he struggled in the garden of Gethsemane. When he was bearing our sins in his body. When the weight of the father's judgment was on him. He's struggling just like you and me. Here it is. And he went his way the second time and prayed saying, oh, my father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, what? Your will be done. There it is. This is what I mean by the child servant. You see, he's a slave to his father, and yet he's a child dependent upon him. He's not breaking out doing his own thing. What wondrous love is this? Oh, my soul. Oh, my soul. And he's doing it for you and me. Let me close in my fourth point. Two simple propositions. His commitment to divine slavery is clearly seen by thy will be done. His conquest is laid out in his suffering. Verse 9 through 11 of Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 through 11. I'm just going to read these in close. I want you to think about where the destiny of this child that we see in Matthew 2 led him. Look at what it says in verse 9, verse, uh, verse 8. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He was a slave from the womb to the tomb, was he not? And his father was pleased with him for it. And you and I 
are free men and women because of it. Do y'all understand that? The liberty that we enjoy is the consequence of Christ being a slave until he said, it is finished. That's the child. The child in the cradle is the child on the cross. He's the same one, the same one. He's called by Peter in Acts chapter four, verse 32 this holy child, Jesus. That's what Peter calls him. Peter's a grown man. He knew Jesus as a grown man. And yet that's what he calls him. You're a holy child, Jesus. And saints, do you remember what Revelation chapter 12, verse four and five says? This is my last text. I'm closing. Revelation 12, four describes Jesus in the larger cosmic sense. It says, and it's tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven. This is the battle in heaven. Those of you who are initiated know this and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it be what? Was that not the nativity account? Was not Jesus in danger of dying even before he came out of the womb? Did not Herod try to kill him? Did not the angel warn Joseph and Mary? Did not he have to go all the way down to Egypt until Herod died? And then he came back in the rest of his life. They were pursuing him to kill him. Why did he do it? Not for himself, but for his father and for sinners like you and me. Now, now watch what the next verse says. Notice what it says in verse five. And she brought forth a man child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her what? Her what? Her what? He's not grown. He's still called a child in the apocalypse. He's not grown. He's still called a child in the apocalypse. Y'all got that? This is what I meant by the child servant. And the idea of the child is that God is pleased with Jesus never to have ever one time shirt his responsibility or argued with his father or toiled with his daddy. Jesus obeyed his father all the way. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. A child is caught up to glory. Y'all know this is Acts chapter one, verse 11, don't you? And as he's speaking with his disciples, a cloud received him up out of their sight. And yet the apocalypse calls him a what? A child. And a little child shall lead them. He's called up unto God and to his what? To his throne. Where's Jesus at now, ladies and gentlemen? He's on his throne. This is why we call him Lord. He's Lord of heaven and earth. He's the Lord of glory. He's the Prince of peace. He's the God and Savior of his people. This is why we call him Jesus, because he is Lord and he remains on that throne until he finally comes back to deliver us to be with him where he is. As he said, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. And all believers rejoice in that promise. Do we not? We love the child. We love the child servant. May God bless you with this message.